Welcome to This Sustainable Life, Solve for Nature. Our guests are the heroes that are working to save our world from climate change, pollution, and the destruction of our natural world. We hear their stories and solutions, and then offer them a chance to take on a challenge to make their own lives more joyful and fulfilling by exploring their values. We focus on awareness of the environment and action. Join us in building a community dedicated to living better sustainably. Today, I'm talking with Doug Chadwick, a wildlife biologist who has authored 14 books and over 200 articles with National Geographic coverage that spans 35 years. If you've read National Geographic, you've probably seen and read his work. He spent years and years living among wild animals, studying them, writing about them, photographing them. He has an intimate relationship with nature, and that comes not just from studying them in books, but seeing them with his own eyes. He's recently published a new book called Four Fifths a Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that details how closely related we are to the animal world, both in terms of sharing the world we live in and genetically. He has a unique perspective and has seen firsthand how our world has changed over the past few decades and how humanity's presence has affected the animal kingdom. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So tune in and listen to the fantastic conversation with Doug Chadwick. Doug, how are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm in the middle of a Montana springtime and uh, I am just bathing in the green here. It's wonderful. That sounds amazing. I've never been to Montana before. How long have you lived there? Oh, gosh. Decades. Uh, oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. I, I lived mostly in tents and cabins for a couple of those decades. I used to study mountain goats uh-huh. and living with them up on the top of the Continental Divide and grizzly bears and, uh, you know, wolverines. All of these animals take you up the mountain slopes to the, you know, the backbone of the world, as we call the Continental Divide here. And um, so now I'm, I'm settled in a Montana Valley. But I still spend as much time as I can out in those mountains. So. Do you see a lot of wildlife regularly or even daily? I do. I'm out of town a bit. And so we've got all the suburban deer and coyotes and foxes and bald eagles going overhead and all that. But I'm only 25 minutes from Glacier National Park. Oh, wow. So I can go, you know, in half an hour, I can go commune with mountain goats again or bighorn sheep or whatever. So, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of public land here. And this is one of the actually the very few places left on the planet. This, this part of the Rockies where all the native plants and animals that belong here are still here. And wow. most of them are doing pretty well. Because we do have big uninhabited spaces and a lot of it's public lands that can't be developed. So, yes, I can see wildlife without a lot of effort. That sounds sounds amazing. Man, I would love to visit a place like that because... As long as I lived in the uh, in the United States, for as long as I lived in the United States, I didn't really get around too much. I spent most of my life in California and getting out of California, I would say I, I've been to like New York City, Hawaii. Uh, I've been to Colorado. I did get to spend yeah. some time in nature in Colorado a little bit. But other than that, I didn't really get out too much. And it would be really, really nice to get out to see places like Montana. I think it's a completely different world from California. Yeah, I hear you. And I've 
gosh, I don't know. I, I've been, I'm going to just say lucky. Um, I was a wildlife biologist going to symposia, doing research, making, uh, trying to make some contributions as a, as a scientist. And, and then I lucked into working for National Geographic and a host of other publications. So when I'm not watching wildlife here, I'd be off tracking snow leopards in the Himalayas or there's a grizzly bear that lives in Mongolia about 30 of them left the gobi grizzly and mm-hmm. or watching elephants or you know chimpanzees in the congo that have ne- never seen humans so i guess i guess that's what i do yeah <laughs> spend my time with animals and occasionally visit with people like you well as a wildlife biologist i think that's exactly what most people would expect of you <laughs> oh, well <I'll- laughs> Uh, I, I, I don't want your uh, listeners to think I've got serious social problems. I, I, <laughs> I, I go hang out with the animals because I don't know what to do around people. That's, that's not the case. Well, not all the time anyway. <laughs> well, you've written 14 books, more than 200 articles, and you've got National Geographic coverage that spans 35 years, and you've spent a lot of that out there in the field, in nature, and living it. So I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit more about some of your adventures related to your work. I know that it's probably a pretty big question since you have a career that spans decades, but could you tell us a little bit about where you've been and what you've done? Oh, gosh. Um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's a, it's a big question. I know that yeah. it's a big question. Well, look, I, put it this way. I, when I was a kid, I was given a microscope by my dad. And I was a pretty normal kid. You know, I, I played ball. I got in fights in the neighborhood, raised a little cane. But I spent hours and hours, once I first looked through this microscope, finding out that there was life everywhere in every drop of pond water in every pinch of dirt I took out of the lawn in the cat fur I picked out of the corners, right. And the dust bunnies. So I started off, I wanted to be a biologist. And then as I got older, I did move into wildlife biology and cause I wanted to be outdoors. I wanted to be in wild places with, with my eyes on animals. And so I guess you say what I did at first was, Maybe it's the way people tend to think of wildlife biology. It's the uh, charismatic, big, furry, warm, sexy creatures that we readily relate to. You know, we all pay attention to. So tigers and, and elephants and gorillas and so on. And I loved every minute of it. And and it's, I'm addicted to that stuff because I, I see my – I try to, without – anthropomorphizing without projecting my desires and beliefs onto animals. I just try to put myself in their place. And there's nothing that substitutes for just being among them all the time and being patient. So I, that's what I sought out. And then as I realized, well, National Geographic looks like it's going to hire me again and a little more successful as a writer, I started to think, gosh, I'm, t- I'm telling everybody I'm a naturalist and I understand wildlife. I don't know anything about insects, which are 85% of the known species on the planet. And I don't know anything about the marine world that covers 71% of the globe. So then I would start 
picking assignments that would take me there because I had good old National Geographic there to say, yeah, if we go for this story, we will send you there and cover your expenses and you will get paid to learn a bunch of stuff. Wow. I mean, I'm supposed to, you know, it's supposed to, I'm getting paid to write a story, but I'm, as I view it, I'm getting paid to go on a seminar. <laughs> and, and because it's National Geographic, I could usually, once I convinced any scientists I was working with that I'm not a media guy, you know, I'm not from, um, not looking for sensational stuff. I don't do politics. I want to understand how nature works. Then they open up and I had this blessing of, People who had put, you know, 30, 40 years in understanding ecosystems or a particular animal just downloading stuff on me. That's that is just a treasure. And that's one reason I feel so lucky. So I did end up scuba diving and doing stories on coral and, and, and looking at marine ecosystems. And then I went out and was doing stuff on the superorganisms we call ants, you know, the colonies of half a million individuals, highly organized. How do they live their lives? And then I did a story on, well, put it this way, there are 6,400 species of mammals on the whole planet. There are 400,000 known species just of beetles. So, you know, I did a story for Geographic called Planet of the Beetles because it's nature at its most creative. And, and if you want to see a an organism doing almost anything, there's a beetle that covers that ground. So anyway, I, I used it, this career as an excuse to just keep getting deeper into nature and stay amazed. Sounds like you get more nature in one year than most people get in their entire lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, the, the, appreciate that comment, but I, you know, you don't tell people the stories of sitting in a crummy hotel room in some foreign country for two weeks, twiddling your thumbs while you're waiting for permission to go somewhere uh -huh. or dealing with, uh, you're in a camel herders hut somewhere and you've got severe diarrhea and a couple other intestinal problems <laughs> you haven't done anything for 10 days so yeah you, you know tend to leave those out but yes i i have been lucky to spend as much time as i can outdoors and in the company of other creatures and you've got a new book coming out called four fifths a grizzly a new perspective on nature so can you tell me a little bit about that book and about where that book brought you for your adventures oh okay well this is going to be disappointing because i know people like i, I mean I, I could sit here all day i guess and come up with remembering there i was you know surrounded by superlatives kind of uh, adventures uh -huh. Char charged by rhinos, blah, blah, blah. But with this book, I have, uh, I've spent, wow, an, an unreasonable amount of time doing book research, finding scientific articles, and looking into genetics and molecular biology, and kind of going back to my childhood geek period, trying uh -huh. to understand more about what nature really is. Because the majority of life on this planet is invisible, right? There uh -huh. are more, there are, if you stand in a square yard of ground, there are 800 million viruses that fall onto that piece of ground every day. Huh. If you went out and dug up your lawn and maybe the neighbors too and were to analyze it, you'd find more bacteria than there are stars in the known universe. 
and thousands and thousands of species. So, and they run ecosystems. These, you know, the little guys, the little cogs and wheels, as they call it. Uh, they're recycling, they're creating nutrients. And I say, I, again, it's like, do I really understand nature? No, not as well as I'd like to. So I did, you know, I included adventures in this book from, again, the Congo to Siberia to diving and that kind of thing. But because I realized readers aren't going to put up with, um, you know, 260 pages of hard science. Um, and I'm trying, uh, maybe this is the time to say, I realized I'm too darn old to keep doing books and stories on one species at a time uh-huh. or one wild place that needs saving at a time. That's kind of my jo- been my job is I'm a arm waver, a cheerleader for critters for wild places for nature but as i did this as i went around the world looking at different ecosystems from the serengeti to the great barrier reef i'm seeing losses everywhere okay so when i started when i was born there were about 2.3 billion people in the world oh let's go back in the year 12,000 bc there were (laughs) a million people on the whole planet And we'd been around, Homo sapiens had been around for 300 to 350,000 years. So it took that long for us to number a million. By the year 1800, we finally hit a billion. And then, I can say when I was born, it was about 2.3. When I went to grad school and was learning about conservation, what do you need to do? The number has since doubled. So for every place when I was born, there were, you know, let's say 23 people. There are now 80 people on the planet. And so all bets are off. And and I realized, again, I don't have time to keep looking at one species at a time. I need to take on a larger subject of how are we going to save nature? I better, it depends on how we think about nature, how we understand it, and how we think about our relationship to it. So that's the book is largely about the nature in us. Now, I'd love to come back to that in a minute about uh, the effect that so many people have had on this planet. But I wanted to spend a little bit more time first on the book. The book is okay. absolutely beautiful. I it haven't is. finished reading it yet, but it's a joy to read both for that narrative writing style that you have all the stories in there that really get you into the theme of the book but also that great scientific information and then those beautiful photographs. What was, what was kind of the main goal of your book? Why did you feel like the world needs this book? Well, because I know you want to get into this, all this later, but I got to say hmm. a couple of things. One yeah, is please. there are the human footprint extends across 83% of the ice-free parts of the planet. of all the mammals on land on the globe, of their weight, the living weight of mammals on the the land consists of humans and their livestock. And the, you know, again, I'm running around the world looking for wildlife, but where there were 10 big mammals in 1970, there are three today. So this is pretty catastrophic stuff. Mm. This is our planet having a stroke as far as the you know the rate of extinctions and all that so i again i i said if i don't take on 
how we think about nature and the nature in us, then we're going to continue to treat conservation and sustainability, and which I know you're, you guys are all about, um, and I am too. Who, who shouldn't be? But if we're gonna, if we're gonna counter trends this strong, because we're in the process of denaturing the planet, we're changing the air. We're change, there's by the year 2050, the amount of plastics in the ocean are said to or predicted to outweigh the fish. So, okay, I can't just sit around and write another story on the hairy wombat or the an obscure snake. So, I took on how do we think about nature? How do we see ourselves? And came at it every way I could from watching animals and empathizing with them, seeing their qualities in us and our qualities in them to what we're built of and how we are constructed, who we are. These are big questions. What are we? Who are we? Where are we going? So four-fifths of grizzly refers to the fact that I share at least 80% of my genes with grizzly bears. And I happen to know a lot about grizzly bears. I'm really fond of them. That's why, you know, that title, Why a Grizzly? Because I'm also 85% identical genes with a dog, a cow, uh, you know, <laughs> na name a critter, uh, a mammal, 88% with mice. I mean, uh -huh. house mice. But it goes all the way through nature. I mean, I have 65% roughly of my genes in common with a chicken. 24% with a wine grape. Come on. Really? <laughs> yeah, 30% a wine a, grape. A wine grape, 30% <laughs> with a banana with rice. Really? And 18% with baker's yeast. I could go on. I'll go on one more. I have 7% of my genes in common with bacteria. The simplest, oh. so-called simplest, single cells that, again, pervade the earth at every level. And 8% of the human genome they say is of viral origin. And this is a good time to be thinking about that or a bad time, depending on how, how you look at it. But <laughs> anyway, there a lot of people, I think, look at sustaining the quality of life we have, sustaining nature, mm -hmm. stopping the denaturing of the planet or the terraforming of earth as kind of, we'll do it if we have the time and money. It's an option. It's an interest group. Conservation is, is, you know, somewhere between a hobby like bird watching and a do-gooder, you know, interest group. There's one of thousands. And I would say, wait a minute, we're built of nature. We are, we are connected to all these creatures. And I think we, people just don't absorb this because this science has been out there a while and it hasn't really got through to the public. And it's partly because People still talk about dirty animals or that person's behaving like an animal. There's something about seeing ourselves as nature as a step down. And I'm seeing it as something that makes us bigger and more connected to the world we live in. I, I see it as our greater selves, more than human, not less than human. And this is maybe sounds a little airy-fairy, but I mean, I look out at the world, and I'm looking at my window, by the way, from my my bedroom, but is I'm seeing green leaves everywhere. I'm just, I am related to everything I'm seeing growing and living out there. And it's not a, it's not an aspiration. It's not a hope. It's not a philosophy. It's just what is. So 
there's a lot to try to get across in a book. And I, yeah, I, yeah, I was really, I really appreciate the nice comments you made about it. I, I hope I succeeded as the hardest thing I ever wrote because storytelling, uh, the last two books I've done, one was on wolverines, one was on goby bears. And you can put people in these exotic settings and with a creature they don't know anything about in a culture or a, a, a setting they may not have visited and just tell one good story after another. It's, they're naturally... The wolverines and the grizzlies of the world tell their own stories. They're captivating. But how do I talk about our relationship with the rest of the living planet in a way that, you know, someone doesn't take the book, throw it over their shoulder and turn on the TV? That's, that's, that's tough. And it's one reason we don't, people don't know enough about science because science, scientists write for themselves. They do it in a language that's not very accessible. This is my attempt to to get a different kind of message out there because I don't think we're going to manage to save as much nature as we need to to keep a sustainable quality of life until we think of ourselves and relation with nature quite differently than we do right now. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that I really enjoyed. I mean, again, I haven't finished the book yet, but I think that more than just a book about wildlife, this book felt more personal. It described more the connection that we all have to nature and it brought all of nature back to us. And it kind of talks about our relationship with nature. And that aspect is something that I haven't read a lot about in the past. No. And I love the, your use of the word connections because that's the key. And in addition to our genetic you know, we're all from a common ancestor, mm-hmm. and I say we're all re- related. But in addition to that, another way of looking at ourselves that I think we need to consider is we have positioned human, humankind separate from and superior to nature. We kind of built a wall. There's nature, and then there's the human sphere. And, and yet, I've got 30, million, 30 trillion uh, cells in my body, human cells, with my DNA. I've got more than 30 trillion microbes living in my body and on my body. And their DNA is 100 times. If you were to grind me up, or you, <laughs> and analyze all the DNA in that person, in that Eugene or that Doug, it would be about 99% microbial. And then the rest would be a little bit of human DNA. Okay. Uh-huh. So those microbes, now people know about our microbiome now. There's a lot more talk about it and mm-hmm. probiotics and stuff. But the diversity of species in there and what they're doing is still a big unknown. We know they're digesting food for us. We know they're defending us against disease. But what we don't understand is how they're balancing some of our the healthful physiology of the human body. And they may be affecting our moods. Because a lot of them produce hormones that are either an analog of or actually the same as the hormones we produce that give us different moods, may affect our thoughts, may affect our energy levels, almost certainly do. And anyway, as the other thing, and I, I am going to get geeky for a minute if it's okay. <laughs> really Please. geeky. Well, besides all the microbes in and on us, doing all the things they do, And it's the same for every other creature, by the way. We've got inside each of those 30 trillion human cells are 
the little organelles called mitochondria, the little particles. And they are the batteries. They're the, they produce the energy for everything we do and feel and think. Can't live without them. And what they do, what they produce in the way of energy is as close to that fabled spark of life as anything I can think of. So these are the ones that power life. They're in every organism on earth from every genius and desperado you've ever met to every critter you've seen crawling around on the ground under your feet. And they are modified bacteria that formed a symbiotic relationship like glycan, right? An algae and a fungus. It's a larger organism engulfed a smaller organism, a bacteria, and they became partners and that became common to every living creature. So now the question I, I would ask you, you know, when you, you read about that maybe, or, or you hear about it is where's the individual in all this? And where am I separate and superior to all the rest of nature? You know, I don't have the answers. I mean, I'm not telling anyone what to think. I'm just saying, here's something to think about. I'm not, not making any conclusions. But that's a very powerful thing to me. And in addition, when I look out at the trees, my window, I see a lichen. Because, well, there are lichens out there on them. But that tree has a partnership with at least one, usually many species of fungi in its roots that go out in an area 10 times the, the size of the, that the roots can reach and brings back waters and nutrients. And that's a symbiotic relationship. The, the fungus gets a little bit of uh, carbohydrates, sugar from the, from the plant. And the plant gets all this good stuff from having an expanded root system. If 90% of the plants on the planet have these relationships, they're like a lichen. You just can't see the fungal part. And then we all know plants are the basis of, you know, the food chains because they take sunlight and use it to manufacture food. They photosynthesize. Well, that photosynthesis is done in little organelles uh, called chloroplasts. And chloroplasts are modified cyanobacteria. So <laughs> that plant has mitochondria in it, giving it energy. It has, which are bacteria, it has these cyanobacteria doing photosynthesis. And we're all living off of that, right? I have my veggies this morning. Um, <laughs> but again, where, where's the individual? Uh, and so science over time has been very good at separating nature into categories. That's how we understand things. That's how the human mind works. And that's a good thing. I mean, look at, look at the technological advances and the understanding we've, we've fashioned over the centuries. But now we need one more step. Now, because we're in a new era where what was good for 8 million humans on Earth or 80 million or 800 million isn't necessarily good for 8,000 million, 8 billion of us, right? And maybe now the time is to understand organisms and understand ecosystems by putting all these different categories back together. 
because almost all of them are symbiotic. They're partnerships. They work as a unit. They work together, and so do we in, in our own way. But then going out and saving nature becomes a whole different thing. You have to save the whole, or you won't have the parts. And you have to save the parts, those individual species, as we call them, or the whole doesn't doesn't work over time. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, absolutely. We're all related and we're all deeply connected. What happens to one of us happens to all of us. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. I should have called you before I wrote, finished up the book. <laughs> get a, a few simple sentences and they go, oh, now I get it. That's oh, what you're trying to say the last bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope that that's part of what my job is here to kind of hear what other people have to say and to hopefully uh, relay that message on to other people who can then maybe take that message and apply it to their own lives. Well, one hopes. <laughs> well, look, I, I mean, maybe... Well, I give, I'll, do you want me to, would you prefer that I, you know, you ask some more questions and then I can kick in with uh, some of the things I'd like to get across or, or just jump in right now on, well, because you, you keep using the word connections and, and so I've thrown out a lot of, you know, thoughts and ideas and statistics and so on, but, you know, the question is still for each of us, and I think in your programs, what you ask, what can each one of us do? What can any one person do? And beside you understand all that, how do, what do I do next? Am I supposed to go outside and start introducing myself as we or us? Because <laughs> me and my, my, my microbes? No. But when you talked about, yes, you can't, if you want to save nature, you have to save the connections between things because that's how nature actually works and that's what gives us the great diversity of life well it comes down to if if you want to save natural systems you we can't we have a history of and we've done very well with it despite the odds making parks and preserves and other kinds of you know natural reservoirs and the problem is we did all that this is a century and a half old model. And we did all that when there were far, far fewer people in the world. And there was plenty of room between those reserves for animals to move and genes to flow. Animals could adapt at the changing conditions. Uh, we're running out of that. So 80% about of the extinctions that are taking place that we know of over time have been on oceanic islands. Why? Because they're smaller than the mainlands, obviously, and they are isolated. So whatever happens there, whether it's a flood, a famine, a fire, a disease, just, you know, hurricanes, whatever, um, they don't have any place to go. And they're also smaller populations. Both those things are more vulnerable than big connected populations. So that's where extinctions happen. The story today is that our parks and preserves are becoming around the world. And I've seen it in Africa and Asia, especially. They're becoming almost like zoos, little fenced off zoos, surrounded by seething masses of development and humanity. Those are not going to hold up over time. So we, and there are some big parks, but not big enough for the likes of elephants and lions and grizzlies and, you know, tigers. So if we can't quite pat ourselves on the back and say we've saved nature, 
We've done a good job of it. Look at this. We need to connect those natural refuges. And it doesn't have to be with super parks. It's a big conflict with, you know, the people's needs. It just requires corridors or wildways or habitat bridges, whatever you want to call them, but links between those existing refuges. Then they've got a chance of holding up over time. Then elephants can migrate. Then grizzly bears can leave an area that all burned the last season and find another. And of course, as climate changes, they can move north or south or yeah, cooler, wetter, whatever is needed. That's the next step in conservation. So that's something everybody can do is support that. And then the, the other thing I think we really need to consider is the value of just being outdoors for everybody. Because you started talking about that right off of the show, like, gosh, you get to spend time out outdoors. Well, it turns out study after study is showing the health benefits of that in terms of not only of robust daily health, but in terms of longevity. And it's related to time outdoors and not even related to the value of exercise that you get out there, which achieves many of the same results. But if you're doubling up, you're best exercising and being outdoors, man, that's the, I, I don't know of any better way to have a long, healthy life. And that's nature. And it's because when you're in a green space and you're out of the human, you know, human context that is more intensive, stressful, you're, you change from, you know, getting adrenaline and cortisol and these other hormones that are symptomatic of stress and anxiety and intense focus. And you get to rest and relax when you're outdoors. And you don't have to go work at it. You don't need a Zen master with you although that might help, <laughs> but you just need to be out and relaxed in an outdoor setting and your blood pressure drops, your heart rate slows, your immune system gets bolstered, your na uh, natural killer cells, uh, which are really strong defensive force in your body, uh, they ramp up. And, you know, there are just all these other benefits. You're getting a little more oxygen. You're getting a few more positive ions, but you're getting exposure to a wider variety of bacteria. So, you know, for your, your own microbiome. But we don't know all the reasons that you get such strong results from being outdoors. You just know that 20 minutes, three times a week or something, you can pick up differences in the health and longevity of people. That's not asking much. Yeah, that little. Yeah, and there have been studies with thousands of people done over, you know, many, many years. And so this isn't me making, make, you know, taking, grasping at one or two studies and saying, let's make a big deal of it. This is, the studies are from the UK as well as Japan. You said you'd been in Korea. So South Korea and Japan, as I understand it, you can, if you are forest bathing and it's costing you, you know, you go to a guided forest bathing sessions. Uh, your insurance company will cover it. It's, it's that good for your health. And it's that beneficial to the insurance company to keep you healthy instead of paying for all the non-healthful things that, you know, happen if you aren't, aren't keeping on top of things. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> well, the Japanese is a tradition in Japan that is, well, distinctly Japanese or um, in the sense that it it's a, uh, 
uh, serious practice of immersing all your senses in a green space. The scents and sounds, the texture of the bark, you know, all this. And, and it, um, so it just deepens the experience. But again, they've done studies with people who just go to an urban park in, you know, downtown, wherever. Um, and people who just go into a garden and have this, what they call soft fascination. They go from a intense focus, you know, like, like I am at the computer and looking in the screen or driving or working in an office. They go from that to just hanging out in the garden, just even looking at pictures of nature, they get some of these same effects. Heartbeat slows, blood pressure drops, all that stuff, immune system strengthens. So, I don't know. How, I don't think anyone has come up with a great explanation of it, but I can tell you that of the 350,000 some years that Homo sapiens has been on this planet, 99.99% of it was spent in outdoor conditions in the wild. And I think it's just the body and mind coming home and what the physiological effects, how those work, I, I'm not qualified to talk about, but... Uh, you just go, ah, this feels, this feels right. And so what would it mean if we, all of us could just make one more little neighborhood park where we live, one more little lot, place for kids to get out and watch beetles in the grass or just, just play. And then what if we made a few more slightly larger parks wherever possible or, in the rural areas around the city, we supported land trusts that pay people to keep some of the open spaces open and green. I mean, it, this is not rocket science. It doesn't, it isn't world changing conservation. It's a little bit here and a little bit there. It's you, you just going out and gardening. You, if you're in a high rise, you getting killer window window box gardens going, <laughs> I mean, you know, and maybe some bee. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot you can do at the local level, at a personal level. And then we should, of course should be thinking about it at the, at the largest of all possible levels. How, how do we keep nature intact and connected? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of the things that I kind of like to bring up a lot on this show. And that is that you can't really find anyone out there who doesn't love some aspect of nature. I think a lot of yeah. times when you start talking about environmentalism and protecting the planet and things like that, people kind of want to add that political tinge to it, mm -hmm. or people mm -hmm. want to make it about, you know, politics or something like that. But environment, there's something about the environment that everybody loves, no matter where you're from, no matter what country you're from, no matter what political affiliation you have. Nature is something that I think that everybody can connect on. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I think I say as much in the book at one point, like you're not who you think you are. You're not what you think you are. Nature isn't how you think of it or what you think it is. And you are connected to nature. Or I put it another way, being one with nature sounds like an aspiration. But it really isn't because you already are. It's inside you. And and so it doesn't matter if you're on your way down to um, a meeting of the anti-environmentalists or whatever, <laughs> um, a meeting of the stop greenies. Um, you're still <laughs> you're still a natural. Yeah. 
you're, you know, you're, but it, yeah, it's too bad that this stuff gets polarized and, and it's, I mean, I could go on about, you, you said what you like to talk to people about. And I, I sometimes jump on my podium and say, how is it that kids can graduate from high school knowing about when the Battle of Hastings was and, and, you know, what, uh, this fact about trigonometry and that about something else, but they don't know who they are. They had high school biology and they remembered a lot of parts of cells and categories of creatures, but they, no one bothered to tell them about the creatures in them and the creatures partnering in everything they look at. You know, coral reefs are, are polyp plus the algae that live in the cells of those polyps. That's what energizes coral reefs and they create a big part of the ocean and diversity in it every plant like i mentioned it just i i I was up hiking on the mountaintop my wife by the way works as a fire lookout in glacier park so really spends the summer up like the guru of the mountaintop looking over the continental divide and she makes killer huckleberry and strawberry pancakes but (laughs) anyway uh, i i eat my way through the berries to go up when i hike up to visit her and i was eating wild strawberry up there thinking how why does any plant bother to taste this good and well of course what plants want you to do is or berries want you to do is eat them and spread their seeds around. Sure. But it turns out that this, the flavor of strawberries, it comes from bacteria that live inside the cells of the strawberry plant. They produce the precursor chemicals that make this, you know, strawberry taste that every uh, confectionery company has been trying to reproduce for forever. And then, you know, it's, Again, I'm looking at this strawberry plant, and it's it's got the it's got the fungi in its root systems that are part of it. It's mm. got the it's photosynthesizing with the help of the cyanobacteria, the chloroplasts. That mm-hmm. Got the mitochondria working for it. It's got other bacteria on it that keep away uh, root-eating nematodes and bad fungus, and on and on and on. And and I this is a I'm eating the result of a whole suite of creatures working together in the thing to create the thing we call a strawberry. So I don't know. I just try it's it's I'm looking at the world differently than I did before. <laughs> and but it doesn't change. I mean, the basic thing is hey, strawberries are really good. Hiking in the mountains is really fun. So I'll yeah. just keep doing that. Yeah. Absolutely. It sounds like you really derive a deep, meaningful connection from the environment around you all the time. I do. And I try not to be hyper aware of it, you know, like don't make it a a necessity, just be there right? and discover things as you go. But one reason I called the book Four Fifths of Grizzly is, and one reason I followed grizzlies for years, um, just to go watch them at salmon streams um, on top of the Himalayas in the Gobi. Uh, just if there's a place with a lot of bears I'll, or or some unusual bears, I'll go try to go see them. Why? <laughs> well, look. When I say grizzly bear, I got your attention for one thing, right? Huh. Because you know they're they're pretty big and powerful and can be dangerous. But when I go out to watch grizzlies, I see them playing. I see them figuring stuff out. I see them. They've got an immense 
capacity for curiosity. Uh, they're more social than people have realized before. The more you watch, the more you see a creature that you can relate to. And it's because the fear factor's in there enough that you're not just watching there like a casual, you know, somebody in the grandstands watching a show or in the, you're pretty keyed up. Yeah. And, <laughs> but it, it, you're, it makes you aware of each subtle little movement and each detail of what you're watching. And, and then it just, me and the power of this creature is kind of a direct line. And, and that's when you start to see yourself and the bear and the, I mean, why, why are grizzly bears or bears in general, the subject of so many ch children's books? Why are there teddy bears everywhere? Why are they used for advertising all over us? Cause we relate to them. Right. We've also got, you know, the opposite side stories where there are these monsters and, and, uh, uh, the ultimate trophy, you know, dragon to go slay yeah, and all that stuff. And other people I meet in Glacier Park will have driven in a car and they come from pl someplace like Chicago, which I'm terrified to walk down the streets. You know, at night. <laughs> <laughs> you take the grizzly bear. <laughs> well, they get out. They, they, I'll, I'll meet them in a parking lot and they'll say, is it safe to get out of the car here? They're in Glacier Park, you know? <laughs> oh Yeah. Well, aren't there grizzlies around? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> if you get out with the grizzlies, you're you'll be safe, you know. But while you're in your car, you've got a fifty percent chance of you know getting killed or injured in an accident during your <laughs> lifetime. So yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Well, it sounds like you really, really care about the environment. And I think that goes without saying. And usually in this show, we then go through a process where we ask what the environment means to you. And I feel like that's kind of been what this entire conversation has been like from the start. But I wonder if you wanted to give it a shot right now to maybe all sum it up into uh, one nicely wrapped little package. But <laughs> what does the environment mean to you? Now, I no, know, yeah. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For some people, they think of, you know, the kind of the obvious things. Oh, it's, it's the ocean, it's the forests, things like that. But I think that everybody has their own unique experiences with nature. To some people, the environment means that forest that they used to run through when they were a kid. For other people, it might just be this little patch this little park that used to be near their house when they were a kid or for some people it's it's the mountains that they used to go skiing on everyone has their own kind of personal deep connection to a specific yeah. place or a specific memory that gives the environment meaning for them i wonder for you is there one thing in particular well i'll stick with grizzlies for a minute mm -hmm. because again I'm I'm a Homo sapiens. I come from a long line of hominids. Before that, we were shaped, built over millions of years by existence in wild places. And so I'm when I'm in the presence of a grizzly, it which has that extra tang of danger in it. It uh -huh. could be in in the presence of a wild camel, the first wild camel I saw in the desert. But it's I'm fully alive at a level I can't be indoors. Mm -hmm. All the nerves and glands and senses that I'm endowed with as a human, they're functioning at, on high. Mm -hmm. And I am, that's life 
for me. That's, that's what life can be. Obviously, you can't spend every moment like that. that. You need the relaxing moments in that favorite forest grove, too. But I think that's part of what the environment is to me. It's, I'm, well, first of all, come on, enough of a scientist that I, you know, <laughs> anti-environmentalism just is an absurdity to me. It makes no sense. <laughs> Who doesn't live in, in an environment? And who's not sustained by a natural environment, yeah. by the workings of nature? Maybe it's not a wild place or in the sense of fully protective, but maybe it's a cornfield, but it's still nature at work. But beyond that, it's I've never got over being that kid who looked through a microscope and just went, oh, my God, I never I never knew the world was so full of life and that it was so beautiful. I mean, you look at a mold, and some molds are these incredible lollipop forests, you know, of, of little beads, cells, and some are shimmering. And it just somehow, I, the, the fact that there's so much wonder and that it was infinitesimal, it was invisible, and yet it was everywhere. I never got over that. And so I, I, I guess at this point, I'm all over the place because I see it in, you know, uh, African plains stippled with with a moving carpet of animals. That's just, well, I, this may be the only living planet in the universe. It's all, we, you know, but what a wonder that there's this diversity and, and, and each animal out, I came to look at each animal out there as a right answer because the question is, what's the best way to live on this planet? It can be a slug. It can be a, you know, a parasitic wasp. It can be, you know, a, it can be a lion, the most regal lion you ever saw striding across the, the plains. But each one of those has answered that question. And each one of those has genes, has abilities, has traits that we may need to learn from, we may need to draw from to sustain life on this planet. They've all been evolving for a very long time, trial and error of what works in different environments. And that's all out there from us to learn from. And I just, I see no end to the wonder, no end to the beauty, and no end to the value of understanding more. And I also feel like Every generation tells itself, well, we pretty much understand now how life works or how ecosystems work. And I think we're, <laughs> we're just like generation, two generations ago, we look back at their ideas and go, well, they were nuts. They had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first guy who looked through a microscope was Anton von Leeuwenhoek. And when he sent in his his drawings of what he saw through this lens, the Royal Academy of Science thought he was nuts. They thought he just had a feverish imagination. And he, one thing he commented on, he said, I probably have, these were microbes. And he said, I have more of these in my mouth probably than there are people in the Netherlands. <laughs> and he was right. He was <laughs> definitely <know>? right. <laughs> yeah, he was definitely right. And, and, um, Probably off by a couple of factors, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it's just wherever you look, there's more nature than we know yet, and that we that we 
them we can explain, but we need to be looking more inside too. And we need to get past this wall, this, these barriers we've erected over in so many cultures over time that separate us from the rest of the world. We can't expect nature to keep operating it. It's already not operating really at full strength. And I'm not answering your question very well, Eugene. No, you are. You absolutely (laughs) are. What I'm hearing right now is this sense of pure wonder, this sense of amazement and appreciation of the beauty that you find in every single aspect of nature and the environment from the biggest things like elephants and grizzly bears down to those tiny little microbes (laughs) well i yeah and it's just i I, i'm i started life as a microbe you know (laughs) i I was a fertilized egg i was i was four one thousandths of an inch in diameter there were bacteria bigger than i was or amoeba bigger than i was and yet you know i had these genes that have been time tested and some of those genes were old before life came out of the sea. I inherited uh-huh. them from way back then, and some were fairly new. But I, one thing I would say is looking into the material that went into four-fifths of a grizzly, I realized as an environmentalist, I had this kind of the same tendency to criticize people. Mm-hmm. And to, I mean, I've done my share of writing articles trying to make people alarmed or feel well, slightly ashamed or guilty. Mm-hmm. And they realized, no, is that's not going to win, <laughs> win this. It, it's how we, each of us sees ourselves. And so the, instead of making this any kind of confrontation, but it occurred to me, it's more than fair to say, no, no, all these things we're learning our dependence on the environment, but our connections with it, it makes our lives bigger and more one. We more fully partake in that, in that we're wonderful. We're creative. We are special organisms, mm-hmm. just as a whole lot of other creatures are special organisms. But again, it doesn't make us less than human. It makes us so much more than we, most people can imagine. They live in a narrow world where there's yeah, I'm not really into nature that much. Or yeah, I get some friends that go bird watching, but I don't get it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it's just like if you just knew what went into the making of you uh-huh. and and into the sustaining of you. What does it take for a plant to produce food for you? You know, what it's all. Yeah, it's all a marvel. Uh, I, I hope I don't sound too la la la. It's just how I look at things. No, that's that's exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for how you feel about the environment. And now I wonder, and I would like to invite you at your option. This is totally optional, but based on those feelings of of wonder and appreciation for the beauty in nature, is there something that you can think of to act? on that feeling. Now, there are a few conditions here. It doesn't have to be the biggest thing. It doesn't have to be the most important thing. We're not trying to solve climate change overnight here. It's not about the size of the thing, but it's about that it's meaningful to you. It's something that that you thought of 
And we find that if you act on something that is meaningful to you, you're more likely to want to do more. The point is to act about on something that you care about. So it has to be a new behavior, something that you're not already doing, um, preferably something oh. that's measurable, something that you do yourself, like can't be something that you tell other people what to do. <laughs> because <laughs> um, you get that from time to time is there anything that you can think of that you might want to do okay i'm going to ask you to give me a give me a suggestion an example from from the conversation we've had i oh. I, I i'm having a lot of trouble getting started on this one yeah. because i was i was gonna say i plant trees like crazy mm -hmm. they have some acreage and and I feel pretty badly about the driving I do from place to place or even uh -huh. flying to go uh -huh. give talks. I'm burning up fuel. Sure. And but you said it can't be something I'm already doing. So uh -huh. then I got then I got stuck. So <laughs> over to over to you, Eugene. Well what? Well, yeah, we, we get a variety of people. I mean, we find that it's much more impactful and it's much more meaningful if you are doing something that you thought of and that you came up with. But I can tell you that um, we've had a wide range of, of challenges that people have taken on. And some of them have gone from things as small as just buying a reusable spoon that they so that they don't have to use single use plastics when they go out anymore. And we've had people do things as small as things like that, to things as big as selling their car and, and deciding to go completely carless. So, I mean, we've had the full range of things in between. We've had people that have uh, wanted to plant trees for their challenge, people who have just decided to try to reduce their garbage or reduce their waste and things. Yeah. You brought up cars and, and planes. That's usually a big one. Some people will try to fly less or drive less than they would have, maybe try to ride a bike more often. But again, the most important thing is not necessarily the effect that it has on the environment, but that it's connected to something that has meaning to you. I think you covered a <laughs> lot. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying at all the at as many levels as I can. I, maybe I'm not being imaginative enough. I mean, I've got my bike handy. Uh -huh. I'm not that far from town. Uh -huh. I am trying to figure out carbon footprint. I am trying to think very carefully about what I eat uh -huh. and, uh, you know, recycling. I, I, there's all those, all of that's important, right? Uh -huh. and, and I'm probably like a lot of people. I do a little bit enough to solve my conscience. Maybe <laughs> I could do a lot more, uh -huh. but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of stumped in terms of personal changes because I'm, I think I'm at a point where I'm, I'm not feeling badly about the things I do day to day uh -huh. and I'm trying to just make them a little better and uh -huh. not, not just going through the motions and, and thinking, well, you know, I'm a good person because I recycle this. Um, uh -huh. But look, what I really do when I have writing books and, and talking to people and you said that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair enough. But, I spend a lot of time working with a land trust uh -huh. and it's a conservation land trust and the grizzly bear is our icon. It's called vital ground. And we have 
in then three decades, but we have set aside two-thirds of a million acres, uh-huh. protected it in terms of its habitat by doing agreements with the landowners not to develop. Uh-huh. And sometimes we have to raise funds to compensate them for that. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, everything else I do is yakking or writing or you know, <laughs> communicating, educating. And uh-huh. that's pretty intangible. But I can go out and walk on this ground now. And there's elk tracks and there's fresh bear tracks. And I'm talking about making connections earlier as a theoretical thing. No, we're making them in practice. And I'm on the board of another... It's an international conservation group, and we're doing the same thing in some areas. In other areas, we're developing community-based conservation plans so the local people get the benefits from having accommodating more wildlife in the area and limiting or being more strategic in the kind of development they do. And this is all, it's the Liz Claiborne Art Ortenberg Foundation, in case mm-hmm. anyone's interested, but they work around the world. So we've got projects from Africa to Patagonia and South America to uh, China and Siberia. And again, these are tangible, hands-on things we can do. And that, I think, if I got any extra energy, I put it into that kind of work. Really? There's always more to do. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's still going to take people thinking differently about nature. We got to get really serious about this business of 8 billion of us terraforming the planet. But at least I can go out and and see the difference that's been made. Yeah. Through these groups. That's right. not But you were asking about something personal and I I don't know what to what to say. I think that in your case, I mean, I think a lot of that will probably connect very well to uh, all the things that you do and all the nature that you observe. One other thing that I think helps some people is that we tell them this doesn't have to be a change that you make forever. It, It can just be one time trying something that you hadn't tried before, just one time within the next month or the next six months or something like that. That work that you mentioned, what kind of work would that be doing? Would is that something that you would want to try doing just one time or maybe more? Uh, I'm, you, you stumped me. Really? I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to put you into a, again, it's an op, It's totally optional challenge. We don't want to force you to do anything because that's the other part of this is that it's really important that we're not forcing people to do things yeah, that yeah. they don't want to do. Um, you mentioned having a bike. If Is it a bike that you use Often, maybe if you wanted to try to replace one car trip a week with a with a bike trip or something like that, that could also be fine. Or if you just want to do that for a month or something like that, it would also be totally fine. But again, no pressure. It's not it's not something that we're going to force you to do. It's totally yeah. optional. <laughs> you're not going to sh- you're not going to show up at my door. No, and, no, and, I'm not going to call the police if you don't. Yeah, do it. okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, good. Then I can say anything. Um, <laughs> no, I think I think what you've done is just make me want to. I, I I shouldn't say double down, but do more of that whole array of things you suggested. I mean, sure, be riding my bike more. Be more conscious of 
every time I go out to start on a car trip, think, mm-hmm. do I need to do this? And and is there an alternative or can I can I wait a week? Maybe I, I you know. I think those are some really great starts, by the way, right there. I think those ideas, even that you just mentioned there, some of those are are great. The only thing sure. that we would have to do at that point is we usually try to make it a SMART goal. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but it just stands for specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. If you wanted <laughs> to try to just do replace one car trip over the next month with a bike ride, then that would totally work as a challenge. It would not... That would work. How, how about... You can help me out. Sure. I I need help um, remembering to keep recyclable bags uh, or cloth bags in in my car. And a half a half the time, I find myself part way into the grocery store, and then I go back to my car because I've remembered. But every once in a while, I'm I'm in the store and I'm going, ah, oh, you know, okay, how can I keep doing this? How stupid am I? And the answer is pretty stupid about this stuff. So I don't know what I, kind of measurable thing I can give you, but I think I'm going to go get two or three more bags that I know we've got tucked around the house somewhere, and I'm going to yeah. go wedge them in the seats of the car or hang them from the mirror or something. That's perfect. So that I'm, yeah. That's perfect. I know, and, and I get I get what you're saying about small small changes, but reliably done and consistently done can can add up to an awful lot. So. Sure, yeah, and in this case, again, it's not about being big or small. It's about doing something that's just meaningful, something that you've always wanted to do, but maybe you wouldn't have if I didn't bring this up to you and give you I think the chance to do. That's it. fair to say. I mean, I'm I'm gonna have your if you'll send me a photo, I'll have it printed on the outside of the bags of, of you. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'll have it looking at me watchfully from, you know, some part of the car. And then when I'm about to get out, like, oh, man, Eugene's going to be really ticked off. I forget this bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I think that that's actually a great challenge right there. And I will do that. I will send you uh, a reminder email or I'll send you a photo. I'll send you whatever you need to do because okay. I want to support you in trying to get that challenge done. All right. Well, this has been fun. I, I really appreciate your the way you work and 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 what your program does is too that's that's a big part of what needs to be changed you know is more of this yeah so yeah we find that the environmental movement has plenty of people shaming people and making people feel guilty or just giving them that list you know from national geographic or from this newspaper that's like the five yeah. things that you have to do to reduce your climate uh, yeah. your impact on climate right and we find right. that it's much more important not necessarily to do big things but just to do things that you find meaning in and if you do that then you're going to eventually want to end up doing more because it's going to feel good doing those things yeah well like i say that's a pretty small one for uh that i suggested but um because you, but that's because you put uh, the tree planting off limits because it can't <laughs> be something you've been doing. But uh, I love planting trees and I love watching them grow and flourish. There's just no feeling like it. 
we could have also done more more planting trees could also be a thing as long as it's uh more than you're doing now but uh that maybe well, that'll be a for a future challenge maybe for a future challenge we'll give you that one i'd so, say that's coming pretty soon i've got those kind of in mind and yeah. and i just can't promise you i'm gonna i don't know what i'm doing the next month I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> but i know i'm planting some and, there you go. and I know I'm I know I'm gonna remember my bags in the grocery store a lot better than I have been. Well, I um, hope so. <laughs> and at the hardware store and every everywhere else because uh it's pretty important. It does take time to get used to. I will I will say that it took me a long time to get used to remembering to bring those reusable bags. <laughs> yeah. Doug Chadwick, thank you so much for coming on today. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. Where can listeners go to learn more about your book or to buy your book? Or to learn more about you? Well, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not very present on social media because that means more time in front of a computer and less time outdoors. Mm -hmm. But they certainly get, look, it, it's been, it's been a, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm, I'm what, salesman for, uh, for Patagonia, but they, they've, as you probably know, are a great company and and they walk the walk as far as contributing to the environment and setting an example. But they've been great fun to work with as a writer. Mm -hmm. Who gets to work with a publisher that says, are we having fun? If we're not having fun, what do we need to do? And they were so good about illustrating the heck out of this book and design, taking care with the, taking care with the design mm -hmm. and, and making it feel friendly and, and warm. And so, I, I would urge people to go straight to Patagonia's site if they want to get the book. It's gonna it's available there, right? And then of course it'll be in bookstores and Amazon and all that stuff um, as of what's today is three days from now. Wow, that's the official um, official release date. Great. And other than that, well, I guess I have my Wikipedia page somebody put up, but I mean I I don't have a lot of. Um, like say media, but they can I, go I, check you out in National Geographic over thirty-five years of uh, yeah, yeah coverage yeah. there. Quite a few stories, and those will show up on if you just Google uh, yeah. my name. Keep busy for a while. Great, so everyone should everyone should yeah. just go out and check out Doug Chadwick online and go find his book, which I'm also going to be really excited to get coming up here within the next few days because. Again, those books are absolutely beautiful. Um, and you sent me, you were kind enough to send me that PDF version. And it's its such a beautiful book. Well, thank you. And, and well, thank Patagonia. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but thank you for the, the opportunity to get the word out a bit more, but also for a really fun discussion. Great. And uh, a learning experience for me. So thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was a really, really great talk for me. Doug Chadwick. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you. And keep in touch, please. Thank you. Doug Chadwick is an incredible human. He spent decades educating us about the wonders of the animal world, and he has helped us all to engage with science and the environment through incredible animals. I was actually enjoying the conversation so much, I forgot to properly end the challenge by scheduling the next talk and had to email him afterwards to ask him to come on again to discuss his challenge. He'll be back on again, and I'm really looking forward to that second talk. 
thanks so much, Doug, for coming on. And I can't wait to talk to you again. And thank you to all the listeners out there who continue to listen to my podcast. Be sure to check out Doug Chadwick's book, Four Fifths of Grizzly. This sustainable life, Solve for Nature, is managed, produced, and hosted by me, Eugene Bible from Verdant Growth, and edited by Christine Reball from Wander Creatives. Thanks again to everyone for supporting the show, and until next time, stay sustainable. Hey guys, Eugene here from Verdant Growth and host of This Sustainable Life, Solve for Nature. I've been doing this podcast for a few months now, and I could use some help. I just don't have the time to edit episodes like I did during the pandemic, and I've had to hire an editor. I don't have enough to pay them for as many episodes as I'd like to do per month. If you're interested in supporting me and my podcast, try donating, one time or monthly. Even one dollar helps. I love doing this show, but I can't do it as much as I'd like without your help. If you can't donate, just hit that subscribe button or tell your friends. Me and the rest of the world could use your help. Let's work together to make this planet we call home a great place through sustainability. Thank you.